seems you barely beat the sun. Kind of talk more so about the experience of how we got to where we were today. You know, the lessons that were learned, um, the people that helped us along the way, and everything else in between. I think it brings up it brings up a really important point that a lot of rowing coaches have side gigs or they are mm -hmm. working on a million different fronts in order to make ends meet and they're doing it for a number of different reasons. Mm -hmm. I was gonna say, is that like a four-part series, like episode one, episode two? <laughs> Jesse's just trying to get himself to like be a regular on this podcast <laughs> and, not, and go past part two, so. Coming home late, it seems you Welcome to episode six of the Corona Crew. Uh, here we are yet again with part two from where we left off from last week. We have Daniela Susanara back in action from after uh, Defending her, her dissertation? Yeah, right? No? Okay, well. Um, Just spending quality time with it. Quality time. Spending quality time. Uh, we have another dissertation guy on here, Nick Lee Parker, presenting tomorrow. Uh, Jesse Folia back again from Harvard University in Cambridge. Um, and of course, we have Ryan Sparks that's floating somewhere in the universe, as seen with his background. Um, last week, we talked about the differences between being an Ivy League coach and being a coach elsewhere. And we talked about the reality of that and what we learned from it. And we're going to expand on that and kind of talk more so about the experience of how we got to where we were today. You know, the lessons that were learned, um, the people that helped us along the way and everything else in between. So, but as always, Icebreaker question to kick us off, and Danielle, you're gonna go first. If your life was a movie, what would the title be? Oh, what would the title be? I thought we were gonna pick a movie that would be our life right now. Either or, go with it. The same question. Okay. No, I was gonna pick a movie that already existed. Nick, do you have a title yet? You can do that. Yeah, it's called The Boathouse, and my co-star, Jesse Folia, right there was in it with me. <laughs> <laughs> you can find it online at ESPN.com. <laughs> you can stream that right away, right? Live for release, right now. <laughs> right now, for your viewing pleasure, for all those sitting at home. It's right up there with the fine balance. Um, and all those other the fine balance is mine fine <laughs> balance is mine and i am Tatey. i mike tady and i are very similar i, I would think that we're <laughs> exactly the same really exactly the same in terms of the people that we are so yes this is ironic i, I didn't know you had this aspect of your disposition ryan well pull hard all right danielle what would your movie be if it was a movie now I think I would get, go with Legally Blonde, even though I'm not in law school. I feel like every time she says, she goes, what, like it's hard? I feel like I'm saying that 10 times a day right now. Overcoming adversity, beating the system. Doing the damn thing. Doing it. Doing it. What about you, Katie? Uh, you know, can't stop, won't stop. Can't sit still. What we're going with? Are we going to Footloose? Is that like similar? <laughs> hey, you know, I I can crank out the Footloose dance. Like, get me a really good wedding band and like just watch out. So you're trooping through the fields of Connecticut and like dancing in barns on tractors and things like that. I wish. There are like there are construction vehicles outside my house, so you know I kind of like just like do a little dance down the street in between them. 
So you could dance uh, on them. That would be more true to Footloose. I thought about doing that the other night when they were parked outside, but <laughs> anyway. Jesse, what would your movie title be? Uh, definitely The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Oh, yeah, give us a little bit of background. Well, I mean, it's one of the most classic Clint Eastwood films. I like to think that I model myself slightly after Clint Eastwood, just like a real man's man. Um, I don't know. I think it, like, encapsulates the times that we're in, right? There's good things, there's bad things, and there's some things that are pretty ugly. So, I don't know. I also think that if I were to, like, live in another time, I would want to grow up in, like, the wild west of the U.S. Like, that would be a pretty cool place, like, fairly exciting, a lot going on. So, yeah. Okay. I actually thought Jesse was going to say unhappy feet because if you've like been around Jesse after a long day and he takes off his shoes, he has <laughs> an unhappy feet. <laughs> <laughs> I was ready for it. <laughs> you've been like saving that barb for a while now. <laughs> Look at how excited he is. <laughs> Absolutely. We used to make him store his shoes outside. <laughs> That, that is a true story. Nick was kind enough to allow me to live with him for the first month I was in New York. I think it only took a, like two days before he was like, hey, you need to leave your shoes outside when you come in the house. The best part was I learned that I wasn't the first person to implement that rule. There's a list of people. <laughs> That's good. Well, Danielle, I'm going to put it back to you because you're the, uh, you've been missing for a couple episodes. We'll kick it off with the first question. How much does your experience as an athlete determine or influence your decision of where you thought you should coach or well, you could coach? I don't think uh, the goal was ever to coach. I never thought I was going to be coaching. And I think when I look back on some of the rowing experiences I had in high school, um, and a little bit in college, I did have some very influential coaches in positive and negative ways. Uh, but ultimately I found myself when I stopped rowing in college, missing, missing those people in my life and that sort of structure. And so I think I made my way back to it through coaching. Um, and I, I toy with the idea of if I just want to you know, drop higher ed and go coach and forget about writing papers, dealing with, you know, higher ed, crazy people. Um, so I think if I, I think I, I value the other work that I do. So I do want to be in a place where I have the flexibility to work in communities and work with schools while also coaching. So I think that that heavily impacts, you know, where I should coach or who I should be coaching. I don't think I need to be a D1, D2 coach where that's my number one focus. Um, I, I like being able to coach club guys and work with guys who love the sport and try really hard, but then are also, you know, willing to have other priorities. And I like being able to where I like to think I have some, you know, mentorship on the other aspects of their college career by getting them out into other programs. And I've been really lucky um, 
and that the guys that I do have on the team now are really excited, um, or at least they pretend to be, to participate in some of the community involvement stuff that I do. And so I, I, I enjoy that we're able to do that and I'm able to focus on both of those things without making too big of a leap in either direction. What do you think it is about the, like you elaborated it or you started to talk about it of that club rowing, you know, the guys are trying really hard, but it might not be their priority. You know, how, what parallels do you see in what you currently do and with that? What do you mean? Say that again? From what, it, tell the listeners what else you're doing and how you see the parallels between the two. Oh, um, what else? I'm, well, I'm finishing school right now. Mm -hmm. Is that is what you mean? So I'm, I'm finishing up sure. my dissertation, um, but I also work full-time as a coordinator for a few programs uh, that help the schools in Western Central Alabama, the elementary, middle, and high schools. So I, you know, I'm spread a little thin, but not that thin. Um, and then, you know, I also do the Instagram for Sparks and get to keep in touch with those kiddos throughout the school year. Um, I, so I, I'm I going to interrupt you, Danielle. I, I don't understand. Wait, I don't wait. understand what's happening right now. Am I getting bombarded? No, for no, no you're, asking, you're asking great questions. Danielle, no. when I see you Is at your best. intervention? <laughs> Daniela, yes. Daniela, Daniela, no, no. But I have a question for you because I've seen you now. I've seen you coach. Like our teams have been at training camps next to each other. But I have seen you crush life when you're at a Sparks camp in the summer and you are managing a million different moving parts. And you have this way of getting the 12 different things that need to happen on different schedules to all come together at just the right time. And I want to know how you do it. Well, I think it has to do with the people I work with. I think that mm. I, I, I expect a lot of the people I work with when I'm in those situations, especially when I know it's all leading up to something or I know what the timeline is. Um, and I think, you know, relating it back to how I coach and the team, I, the guys know that I expect a lot in their um, are pretty clear expectations set throughout the season, regardless of what else they have going on. And I think I kind of just approach everything like that. So I, some people, you know, might say it's off putting, but I think it's just forward. Where do you think you, well, I'm going to kind of build off the next question. Where do you think you like picked up on those skills? Like, was there anybody in your life that was very much like a, like, a, I don't want to say go-getter, but like somebody who had that ability to, to grasp the bigger picture and find out how, how all the pieces fit together. It was like oh. your mom or like a coach um, or like somebody else, like that you saw that firsthand or is it just by trade? I would say it's a combination. Uh, my mom, my mom is a lot like me in those ways, but she's not always uh, as forward. But my high school coach, I can use her name because she won't care. Uh, Monica Hilku. She coaches for what Redwood Schoolers now. She's mm -hmm. always been like that. And you know, as a eighth grader, that was terrifying. But as I've worked with her throughout the years, 
it's really nice to know exactly what's expected of you and exactly what your goals are. And sometimes, you know, you get to plan your way from point A to point B, or sometimes you get to plan with other people, or sometimes you just are told, but it's nice to know what exactly you're walking into. And that's exactly how she is. She's a very straight shooter. And I do best. I know that I also do best when I'm given direction like that. I would much rather you tell me what exactly is my job and how you want me to do it. Or if you want me to decide how to do it myself and I'll, and I'll run with that. But if I don't know what the end goal is, I, I, I mean, I'll take the initiative and get to whatever end goal I think is <laughs> the best end goal, but it works better when I'm given an end goal. This Thanks, Monica. <laughs> I'm glad because I was going to start crying. I was like, okay, okay, I'll stop. I'll stop one of the jobs. <laughs> Jeez. I mean, if this is something that you're coming to, like a self-discovery process, like, then that's fine. We're all here to support you. It's a very, you know, welcoming, comforting community. Nick, who I would think, you turn to? I think to? It, brings up, it brings up a really important point that a lot of rowing coaches have side gigs or they are mm -hmm. working on a million different fronts in order to make ends meet and they're doing it for a number of different reasons mm -hmm. you know i think I, I, my average income my first five years of coaching was twenty thousand dollars a year like for five years mm -hmm. in a row that was all i made uh, on on average and i loved it it was miserable at times um but it was awesome and i think a lot of coaches do that and that's something that it says a lot about why coaches are involved in the sport. Well, I think to build up that, it'd be, it's interesting to look at what those, right? Because they can fall under, under different categories, right? I think you can take on responsibilities or do things that relate to rowing and like be able to subs, like, substitute income that way. You can take on roles that are like outside the world of rowing, but have similar um, like types of, of engagement or like in interaction. And then there's like the third level, which is like how many people do something outside of it, which is completely unrelated to it at all, right? Like, like where there's no crossover. Um, cause I, I don't know, I found in my career, like as I had to add things, cause similar to you, Nick, right? Like you, you, you start out, like you don't make any money, but you really love what you're doing. So you're trying to figure out how to do it. And I feel like as I've moved further through my career, I spent more and more time figuring out ways to like supplement income while those supplementing the, the like emotional and sort of, you know, psychological aspects of coaching that I really appreciated, even if it wasn't actually like coaching on the water. Yeah. I think those first couple of years, I refer to them as like the suck years. I'll put them in quotation mark where you've got some sort of grind and you, you, it sucks in some way or another, whether it's financially or, you know, you're learning how to find your footing as a coach, like you're frustrated with who you're working with, like whatever it can be, but that's where you really find the, the passion for it. Like if you can survive those years, like then you come out on the other side and have such an appreciation for everything that you do inherit and that you do that is offered to you. Like Nick, for you going from like $20,000, kind of like a part-time salary to a full-time salary. Right. And you, it's almost like a greater appreciation that you went through those low times of eating saltines and peanut butter or sleeping in the boathouse or sleeping in the truck. Right. We've all done it. <laughs> um, or I should say most people have, 
but you yep. really learn of you learn whether or not you're going to make it. See, I think that's a really good point, Katie, because I don't, my undergrad and like the end of my undergrad were definitely the suck years. Like I was finishing paying for college on my own. I was babysitting. I was waiting tables. I was like, mm -hmm. just, you know, trying to figure it out. Like I was coaching the guys, but some of them, I was the same age. I didn't know which way was up, but it was just like the grind and it sucked. But you know, now if I need to do six things at once, I can, mm -hmm. and I could do them pretty well. I, I, for, for me, I thought the suck years came like maybe four or five years into coaching, like, because initially you're like still really young and like really rambunctious. And I don't know, like when you're like 22 or 21, like the idea of making not a lot of money, like is so unimportant. And then you get to be like 26, 27 and you still haven't made any more. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you're like thinking to yourself like, Oh man, what am I doing with my life? Right? Like you're so young and naive about it initially. And then you go through this period where you're trying to figure out like, am I going to be able to actually do this as a career? And it really sucks. Right. And then hopefully you kind of bounce out of that. But I, I don't know. I look back on my first years of coaching with like such envy because things seem so simple. Like no, nothing seemed that important or, or retrospectively. I think in the moment it, it seems all like the most important. But now like you look back and you're like, there was no pressure. Like you're doing this essentially just for fun. Like there was no thought of like, can I do this? Or like, what is the next job or like anything like that? You're just like in it for the sake of like pure love. And, and I don't know, I, I love talking to young coaches who are still in that phase because I think it just like reinvital like reinvigorates my own mm -hmm. passion in a lot of ways like thinking about that absolutely I'm totally with you I think it's also the most important thing uh to find in other coaches if you're looking for other people that you want to work with or you want to be involved mm -hmm. with is that on some level you're like you get to talking about rowing and you're like oh like you love this like you really love it like that's one of the most important things for me and, and anybody I want to spend time with talking about rowing mm -hmm. that reminds me uh Nick of, of like a conversation I had over the I guess it was in like November or something I ran into Jeff Monahan, who's this kid who Nick and I coached who's like a bit of a goofball to begin with um but he just got like his first coaching job at Dartmouth and I like ran into him at uh, an event where we were both recruiting and it was so fun to watch how excited about it he was like I feel like I was kind of like going through the motion of like oh I'm here like this is all happening whatever and this kid's like bebopping around like just like couldn't be more tickled like rocking his like you know freshly minted Dartmouth polo and I don't know it was kind of, it was kind of inspiring for me to like be like oh wow like th that's what this can be like you know like because I think we get sometimes caught up in sort of the monotony and you, you start to only be excited about the things you want to do, as opposed to when you first start, you're excited about everything because it's what you want to do. Mm -hmm. Totally. So, so maybe that's the question. How do you remain passionate about coaching? How do you reinvigorate that like eternal process of striving for knowledge and, and like making sure you remain engaged and I mean, I'd like to think that say, yeah Katie because last week you were just saying you were already missing it so what do you what do you think I mean it's I'm still in the 
the rowing realm, obviously. And, you know, thanks to Ryan, like I still get to, you know, work with um, young athletes. And so that like, it fills a void, but still there's nothing like being on the water. But I think for me to keep that passion relevant, um, I look at who I surround myself with on a daily basis, you know, who I talk to and the type of conversations that I'm having. Um, and I think that that it's, I don't want to say it reinvigorates me or reminds me, but it just keeps things present. Um, especially at a time like this where, you know, we're all socially distancing and it's zoom call after zoom call, um, to be able to sit here and laugh about like the jobs that we first had or like anything like that, where you're, where it triggers the memories. Um, I like to think of it as staying more engaged and like being reinvigorated. Personal preference. Um, yeah, I don't know. I do miss it. But. Ryan, what were the suck years for you? <laughs> I'm still in them. <laughs> 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 yeah. I think I mean what we're talking about is balancing hardship with passion which you know if you put that into an equation there's growth and I think Jesse coming back to your question of how, how do you continue to ignite that passion you know somebody who really exhibits or exhibited that to me was Andy Card when I worked for him because you know, it's no secret that Andy just kind of reinvents rowing every four years. Like, you know, he just kind of decides he's going to go in a different direction and he goes that way. And there's other coaches that are like that too. Um, and that's, that's their way. And that's not, I'm not saying that's the right way. I'm saying that's one way that, that some guys have done that. Other people have built on a body of knowledge over a very long period of time and continue to learn. Um, but ultimately they, for, there's, I think at a certain point, you lose impetus to grow in your life. You've got it figured out enough. You've got like a reasonably okay, like it doesn't really relate to income, but like for what, for what it's worth, like you've got security enough that you don't really have to try that hard to kind of get more, like you know what you're doing. And I think at that point in your competency, passion is the only thing that can really push you um, to grow more. So if you, but, and then the, the question is how much hardship are you willing to undergo to kind of experience that growth and how much is that growth worth to you? I don't know if that makes sense. So in other words, you'd have to choose growth over and over again. Um, I think if you really want to continue forward in, in, um, in that, if that makes sense. Nobody has anything to say to that? Nick looks like he was thinking, so I was going to let him take it. He's mm. got that pensive look on his face. I think it's pretty rare once you, once you get into it that you decide to, 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 to back off. I think I definitely take time where I take a break from it and I step away for a few days or a week or, you know, I think some, um, I, I've, I've found that for me, I really needed that. I really needed to like kind of step away and spend time with family or friends or do something right. I, I, I was thinking about rowing because I think I think about it all the time. 
but it wasn't super active and that would recharge me in a, in a way where I felt like I could reapproach thinking about rowing with a clean slate and I would come back to it and I would say, okay, well, let's think, let's decide that everything that I previously thought, let's just assume I don't know any of that anymore. And here's what I'm trying to figure out. And then I would start over with a very beginner's mind kind of approach and say, well, what about this? And I'd start re-asking questions and trying to approach things again differently. And so I, I found that for me reinvigorated that, that passion. Um, but it was also my way of staying engaged and, and part, time, part of the time stepping away and really having a good time to clear your head and come back to things has been the, one of the ways I've really stayed engaged with rowing and you know I think there's there's a lot of good other research on that like sometimes when you say oh, I'm gonna sleep on it like sometimes really what you need to do is sleep on it you wake up the next day and you're like yeah this is super easy where you know before you didn't have a good answer you just had to figure it out I think giving yourself time is something that's really critical um, and what's amazing is that's the same kind of a lesson we would apply to our athletes I think that's one of the hard things as coaches is right, you know, like these things you need to do for yourself are also things you're telling other people to do. So you have to do as you do and as you say. What the thing that comes to mind too, like building off of what you're saying, Nick, is like the the question that we talked about last week about what's the time you changed your mind um, about something. Like to me, the process of changing your mind is how you engage in like continuing to be passionate, right? Like when when you go through the when you when you go through the same system all the time, and I think you know to to tie that in Ryan to what you were saying with Andy, like I think one of the things that Andy does a great job of is like sometimes he obviously gets it really right, and sometimes it's wrong probably a little bit too, and I would assume he would admit that. But like I think by doing that, like you're just sort of constantly on the edge of your seat and having to react because it's not something that. I, I mean, I use the, the phrase like stimulus response, right? It's like what you do in training or, or how periodization of training or everything works. Like you have to create some sort of stimulus in order to get a, some sort of response. If you've done what you've always done, you get what you've always got. Um, so like, I, I think that like stimulus response scenario, like changing your mind about something or being like, I don't know if I agree with this, but I've heard that like, it's going to work. I'm going to try it. And like, that's going to engage me because I'm going to have to be that much more like, locked into what's happening around me to be able to like adjust and adapt to it. Yeah, I would, you know, Jesse, I, I think something that's kind of interesting about that is that the discussion we're having about coaching rowing, in my opinion, is very American in that American, we have where we have the most number of professional rowing coaches in the world, you know, full-time professionals by far, right? And as a result, we run teams. And as a result of that, um, there's a bunch of different ways to do that and, and, and a wider variety of ways to experiment with it. Whereas I would say if you're a part-time coach, you know, or you're a volunteer coach, particularly if you're coaching in a, in a system that has a pretty developed coaching education system, pretty developed structure development, then I don't necessarily know if you are thinking, I think that you're it's a different type of creative thinking and, and it's running a program. I don't, I'm, I'm kind of philosophizing here that I think that it's possible. I mean, everyone can feel free to disagree with me, but I think it's possible that American coaches have the greatest level of diversity. American professional coaches have the greatest level of diversity in the way that they create stimulus response and the way that they 
they structure their their team systems um, versus other you know versus coaches from countries with fairly specific ideas about that. Um, and I think it's cool in one way. I mean, it's like having a lot of different restaurants um, that can do food in different ways, and some chefs really have to think and reimagine, and that gives us a pretty solid gastronomic scene in so far as rowing. But it's it's also you know it also that that can come with negatives and positives. Yeah. I mean, I don't disagree that there's like negatives and positives to that as well, but I do think it it allows you to remain more engaged. Right. Um, and like, again, more adapting to, to like your scenario and the circumstances that you're in. And I mean, I think you're like opening up a whole new can of worms of like, is the American system of rowing the best? And I mean, I think as with anything, there's positives and negatives to it. But I think just the fact that we have more professional rowing coaches and more rowers, like that's a pretty positive thing. It is, a, I will like, I wanna go ahead and say though, it is a very, there is a specific path and there are those suck years, especially when you're early and if, particularly if you wanna coach in the collegiate level and you're trying to kind of get it into that grouping and you didn't get a job just offered by your head coach straight out of school. Um, but I'll say that, that that's a very American path into coaching in some ways. Um, and yeah, I would love to talk about the systems because to be honest, I have problems with the system. Um, but that's a different, that's a different podcast. <laughs> One that would probably get all of us in trouble. <laughs> well, I was going to say it. Is that like a four-part series, like episode one, episode two? <laughs> Jesse's just trying to get himself to like be a regular on this podcast and, not, and go past part two, so. <laughs> no disagreement. <laughs> I, I'm very persuasive, right? Like that if, if we're talking about like personal uh, skill sets, I think that just like in betting myself in something that I have no business being involved in, you know, like that's the core story of my yeah. coaching life. I can testify to that. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> that that exists. It is one of your strengths. But you use it for good. You use yeah. it for good. Right. Of course. I mean, do you think that people are drawn into coaching and kind of drawn into that passion? What do you think the major motivating factor is? You know, what what is the is it I mean, and they're like, is it is it the ego of being able to have people do what you say? Is it the beauty of being on the water with with you know the boats and and you know watching people dip the oar in and out in the exact same way you know and the bald eagle that flies just overhead just in the right precise time when there's perfectly flat water no like nothing else out there what what drew you guys in I got into it because I saw how much. I got out of the sport in the sense of the lessons that I learned and the development that I experienced of just life skills and, you know, learning how to cope with things, overcome obstacles. Um, and what I built my coaching philosophy on was that I believe sport is a huge tool for character development and I'm biased towards rowing, but I wanted to be able to be in a position where I could help other people experience or have some similar experience to what I did or what I had of, you know, just being able to grow as a person through the sport. That's a good answer. 
Nick? I don't think I knew um, what I was specifically looking for or what I really thought about rowing until much later. I went into coaching because I wanted to understand rowing better. And I was able to go to grad school, which, you know, paid for grad school. And I got to study things that I thought were really relevant to rowing. And I got to apply them uh, to rowing and through, through coaching. And I really wanted to understand rowing. But I didn't have a specific mission the way Katie did. I wasn't thinking about it like that. I was just like, I'm trying to figure out this rowing thing. And by the end of my second year of coaching, as I got to really work with athletes and I got to see them struggle and I started reinvigorating how I was approaching practice and we started changing things and we really poured ourselves into this effort, that was something I really liked. I really liked this idea of I'm, I'm working towards something with a group of people and we're getting there. And that was, that was the reward. But I didn't realize that I think until I had done it. It was a it was an afterthought. I, I got into coaching because I was like, I'm trying. I'm still trying to figure this out. I couldn't figure it out in four years, and I want to understand rowing. Um, so it was a bit different. But now on the flip side, I think that process of figuring out figuring out is still what drives me forward, and doing that for for our team is what makes me excited. I agree with Nick. I think it's definitely the challenge and the challenge working with, or not the challenge of working with people, but the, that working with people to overcome the challenge. That's, that's the fun part of it. You know, if it was, I don't know if I would, I don't know if I would love it as much if there wasn't a challenge. Agreed. The underlying statement there is that it most likely means you're going to fail far more often than you mm -hmm. succeed. And there's a personality that gets drawn into the sport because of it. You know, you're willing to sit at a sit on an erg and stare at a wall. Uh, swimmers have something similar. You know, they're in a pool looking at a black line for two or three hours a day. So what it is about this, you know, obsession with trying to perfect something the same movement, you take thousands upon thousands of strokes, and you're trying to make it better, trying to make it better, you're trying to help other people make it better. And we're talking about the, the differences that people are making are incredibly small, but they can have really influential outcomes on the performance and just the overall experience. Um, yeah. And it's not just technical, but it's in how they approach everything too. Yeah, I don't know, I, I kind of disagree a little bit in that well, but I mean, I guess this is something that can be different for everyone, but I've always thought like a coach is a coach, not, they're not sports specific. And I'd be interested how many people were like drawn in to be a rowing coach, because I've certainly thought in my life about like the idea of if I had like chosen another sport, could I have gotten to the level of skill in coaching in that if I had devoted myself in the same way? But, but to me, it's like, it's much more about the person, like to be a great coach, like it all relates back to like personal interaction skills and teaching, in my opinion, like the, the best coach doesn't, it doesn't mean that there's one way to be a teacher, but like all of the best coaches are great teachers. Like, yeah, they get people to listen and they get people to like strive to be willing to problem solve like that. Those are the two things that are like overarching across, right? Like. And that's yeah, where I kind of right. 
disagree a little bit in the, like the fine movement. Like I agree that like we're very tied into that, but at the end of it all, like what are we good at? We're good at like engaging with people, getting them to understand a concept and like instill in them a passion for like what you're talking about, which is trying to understand what that fine movement yeah. is. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna. You're right. I think the order there is correct. And Jesse's right that the order of that operation is absolutely correct. <laughs> for the record, uh, is that was a pure example of Jesse persuading Nick that he was right. So as I said, I'm used to this game, guys. I've, I've been around. I know when I'm wrong. I'm going to disagree because I'm going to say, I'm going to say that, that there are elite coaches out there who are on the Olympic level who are not people, people who are, you know, who are definitely um, introverts and don't say a lot. And you missed what I said, Ryan. I didn't say it has to be the characteristic, like outspoken. I'm saying that they're engaged. They're good at teaching people and engaging with them. So, right? so that's Mike Spracklin is good at teaching people and engaging with them. Absolutely. I think are he's fascinating. Kidding? He's, yeah. <laughs> he's definitely, I, look, I, I, I've heard, I heard him talk at a couple of conferences and the best one was his, the video projector went out. So we just sat there for 75 minutes and he just talked and it was the best 75 was minutes of it my was early that coaching Connecticut, career. Connecticut a few years ago? U.S. rowing, Hartford. No, this, was, this, was, this was in Columbus, Ohio in 2006. Oh, well that also and happened in Hartford a few years ago and it was the best. Yeah. It was great, but you know, and I, I remember hearing some really great stories, but he doesn't have to be, you don't have to be loud spoken. It's about doing exactly what Jesse said. I'm going to say that at Elk Lake, I've, I've, I, I don't think he spoke for 75 minutes before he just sent guys off the line for practice after practice after practice from what I know. But, but there's something in not saying anything that is pushing those guys, well, I'm going to do something to get them to talk. Like, come on, like, if I win this piece by three links of open water, he's going to talk. It's like Harry. It's like who? Harry Parker. Man. Oh, Harry. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, Ryan, you've been ousted again. <laughs> Ryan's going Everything to you know start talking less and hope <laughs> that we buy in and – I'm just gonna keep. I'm just gonna keep spouting my my you know blasphemy. That is what I do, and that's that's how I will go. I would I would certainly say I've over time subscribed to the idea of the like less you talk, the more people listen. Yeah. You know, I got this from. Uh, I think there's always like good lessons. Like there's a a good conductor story about a conductor with the Vienna Philharmonic and this young conductor couldn't get the orchestra to slow down the way he wanted to. And the old man conductor gets up there and rather than making all these big motions, just takes, right, just takes it. And he's the smallest directing you can ever possibly imagine. And all the orchestras zeroed in because they can barely see what he's doing with the baton, goes off perfectly. Um, just it was always been a good metaphor about you know man knowing when to be loud and knowing when to be soft. Definitely the right thing to keep in mind. I think that that serves a nice transition point because we are running out of time. If you think back to your like first steps in coaching, 
like whether it be, you know, advice to yourself in the suck years or in your first year, what one piece of advice would you tell yourself based on what you've already learned? Mine would be, is you're not always right. Mine would be do your job. <laughs> uh, I think mine would be to back yourself. Mine would be to be patient. I think mine would be ask better questions. Hmm. Well, Nick, you'll have the opportunity to ask better questions on episode seven of the Corona Crew coming next week. Wait, uh, this, was, this is seven. Eight. 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 Here we are. You should have been silent. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, uh, we're signing off. Uh, Thanks for tuning in and listening. Uh, Tell your friends, hit subscribe, throw a little comment down in the uh, comment box and let us know how we did and what you want to hear from us. So um, from all of us here at the Corona Crew, plus our Jesse, thanks again for joining us for uh part two maybe we'll be back for part three but that's tbd um thanks for having me <laughs> signing off coming home late it seems you barely beat the sun Tapping my shoulder